Thanks to George Moore, I have always pictured Edward Martin in a setting of chill discomfort, a background of drafty discomfort in Pump Court in London, a background of dull, candle-lit shabbiness in Linster Street in Dublin, a background of monkish austerity in the ancient turret room of the castle at Talaira. George Moore has described the cold room in the tower that was built by Martin's ancestors in Norman days. A turret room reached by cold, moist, winding stairs, his bed narrow as a monk's, the walls whitewashed like a cell, and nothing upon them but a crucifix. When I visited it a little time ago, the turret room had been for long empty, unlived in, yet it had changed little since George Moore had last climbed the narrow stairs. There's no door. Wait now. Pull back the curtain. Careful on the stairs. Beyond the faded curtain, which cuts off the Norman Tower from the new house built in Victorian days, the stone stairs take a corkscrew turn between weeping walls and deliver the climber, a little out of breath, to the room where Martin made his home. It is a small, square, cramped room not more than a score of paces wide from wall to wall. Plain oak panelling hides the dank discomfort of the stone walls. But there is little real comfort, except perhaps for the promise of firelight on the vast hearth. The oak table and stools are plain and unadorned as the furnishing of a monk's cell. The breast-high writing desk at which Martin worked is set before one of two narrow windows which are darkened rather than adorned by panels of painted glass. The bedroom next door is bleak and stone-walled, and the tiny oratory on the floor above is a place of monastic austerity. To make deliberate choice of such living quarters might argue an eccentric or inspired desire to withdraw from the world. But Edward Martin's way of life is not so readily explained away. Dennis Gwynne suggests a more significant reason for Martin's choice. He tells of the young Edward Martin returning to Talara from Oxford to take his place as one of the leading Catholic landowners in County Galway. He tells of Martin's strong-minded widowed mother who has determined that her son will take a leading place in the life of the county and tells of her determination to make a suitable marriage for him. He tells how Martin reacted to his mother's ambitious plans. He threw himself into plans for rebuilding the uncomfortable old house got one of the best-known Gothic architects in London to draw up the designs, and deliberately committed himself to an outlay of £20,000. The result was one of the most spacious modern mansions in all Ireland. Its completion only increased the impatience of Edward's mother to find him a suitable wife who would bring a new generation of Martins into the world. Only by degrees did she discover what an uncompromising and incorrigible misogynist her own son was and that his decision to have his own bedroom in the old feudal tower, bare of furniture, with whitewashed walls and a stone-flagged floor, was an idiosyncrasy that no amount of persuasion could overcome. Even while he was building the new house, on which the hand of the Gothic architect lies so heavily, Martin must have been planning his own celibate quarters in the tower. Owen Linan, born and bred in the shadow of Talara, and for all of a lifetime closely associated with Martin, recalls what Martin really thought of his new house. didn't think very much of it, as he thought. It had no architectural features, but he did it to please his mother. He says he knocked down a fine old house in order to please his mother to build this foolish-looking 
building. Dermot Coffey was a frequent visitor to Talara. He remembers the big house and remembers his friend Martin in the setting of the house. I first knew Edward Martin in, the, in 1900 or 1901, when I was still only a child. My people were much interested in the Irish literary revival. And through that, we got to know him. And we used to go to stay with him at Tlara. Tlara Castle was a big house with three distinct parts. One, an old tower, typical of the castles of County Galway. Next to it, the new building, which was on a large scale with a big hall with marble pillars and a gallery reached by a marble staircase. And lastly, the old house, which, when I knew the place, was used as servants' quarters. The servants, he had an old butler called <coughs> Gantley, and a cook house and housemaid. A very small staff for so large a house. The housemaid was a remarkable character called Mary Ann. She and the cook used to fight, and Mary Ann would come to Edward Martin with her hair torn and scratches on her face, and say, look what your servant has done to me. Martin always refused to interfere and replied, you must settle these matters among you, between yourselves. You can't expect me to interfere. The quarrel would then die down, as they were all devoted to Edward Martin and did not want to leave. Mary Ann used occasionally to try and tease her master, and on the occasion of the coronation of Edward VII, she announced to him that she was taking a week's holiday to go to London to see the, the coronation. Martin replied that he was delighted to give her a week's holiday and would pay her fare. This took all the fun out of the expedition, and Mary Ann never went. I never saw Edward Martin's mother, who died before I knew him, but I understand that his dislike for women, which was unusually strong, was at least partly due to her having been so anxious for him to, to marry, that she constantly had eligible young women to stay and paraded as possible wives for him. His first published work, a satire called Morganti the Lesser, describes <coughs> heaven as run by monks and hell by women. Though the rest of the house was luxurious, his bedroom and sitting room in the old tower were furnished with monastic simplicity, modelled on Savonarola's cell in San Marcos in Florence. He used, I believe, to get up very early in the morning and write till breakfast, which he had at ten or later. He did not expect his guests to keep these hours. He ate an enormous breakfast and took a great deal of exercise, mainly walking. He never had afternoon tea, but ate a very large dinner at about seven. His somewhat unusual meals made it difficult for him to fit in with other people. When he was asked out to dinner in Dublin, he would suffer torments if the dinner was at eight, and always complained to his intimate friends he did not get enough to eat. When he came to us, my parents used to get a large joint and ask him to carve. As a result, he was always ready to accept our invitations. He was a most kindly host or guest. His voice had a rich Western tone which was pleasing and seemed to fit his personality. He had a broad sense of humor. As I got older and to know him better, he used sometimes to ask me to walk with him and would discuss political or literary subjects. I remember one walk we had and he asked my parents and me to stay. The day we arrived, he took me for the walk. After a while, he said, we'd better be getting back, as your mother is here, so we must get into evening clothes. Women like that sort of thing. That's what makes them such a nuisance. 
in exactly the same tone as he would have said, it's been raining, that's what makes the grass so wet. I assured him that my mother would not mind a bit if we didn't change. He said, really, Dermot, really? I didn't know such sensible women existed. He was delighted when my mother assured him that it was true. So it seems that in choosing the turret room, Martin was quietly and firmly making a choice by which he was to stand for a lifetime. He would live unmarried and alone, satisfied with the cold comfort of bachelor quarters. But that isn't to say that he withdrew from the world into the shelter of his turret room. Far from it. From his cold room in Talara, from the shabby room in Linster Street, Martin took an active and often stormy part in the Irish life of his day. It is true that, overlooked in the shadows of his turret room, he has been given less credit than he deserved for his work. Not even the kindliest of commentators gives him the full credit that is his due for the part he played in the founding of the Irish Literary Theatre. Mr. Lennox Robinson hardly gives Martin credit for being even a helper. Here is what he has written about the founding of the movement. That is Lady Gregory. There would be no theatre here if it wasn't for her. She met Yeats and she knew a man called Edward Martin, a neighbour of her own, a Catholic landlord in County Galway. Martin and Yeats had written plays and they wanted them produced, and they thought of having them done in London. Lady Gregory, who up to this had no particular interest in the drama, said they should be done in Dublin, and, thanks to her energy, done in Dublin they were. Yeats himself was even less gracious towards the memory of Edward Martin. In 1923, Yeats was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. In part, at least, that award had its origins in the movement to create the Irish Literary Theatre. Looking back, in that brilliant moment of success in the hall of the Swedish Royal Academy, while purse, prize, diploma and medal were presented to him in the presence of the King of Sweden, Yeats set down his own memories of a great beginning. Our first performances were paid for by Mr Edward Martin, a Galway landowner with a house partly 14th century, partly a pretentious modern Gothic once dear to Catholic families. He had a great hall adorned with repeating patterns by that dreary decorator Grace, where he played Palestrina upon an organ, and a study with pictures of the poets in poor stained glass, where he read Ibsen and the Fathers of the Church, and nothing else. Yeats' middle-class background is rather distressingly revealed in that condescending passage, written in the heady moment of his triumph before a king. But even more distressing is his failure to acknowledge generously the fact that the Irish Literary Theatre and the Abbey Theatre, which arose directly from its early beginnings, owed so much of its existence to the public spirit, the enthusiasm and the open purse of Edward Martin. Lady Gregory is infinitely more candid and more conscious of the facts in her appraisal of Martin's part in the literary revival. She writes of a day in 1898 when she was visiting Edward Martin's cousin and intimate friend, the Comte de Basterot, at his home on the shores of Galway Bay. Mr. Edward Martin, my neighbour, came to see the Count, bringing with him Mr. Yates, whom I did not then know very well. After a while, I thought that the Count wanted to talk to Mr. Martin alone, so I took Mr. Yates to the steward office. We sat there through the wet afternoon, and although I'd never been at all interested in the theatre, our talk turned on plays. Mr. Martin had written two, The Heather Field and Maeve. I said it was a pity we'd no Irish theatre where such plays could be given. Mr Yates said that had always been a dream of his, but he had of late thought it an impossible one, for it could not at first pay its way and there was no money to be found for such a thing in Ireland. We went on talking about it. 
We said we'd collect the money, or rather asked to have a certain sum of money guaranteed. We could take a Dublin theatre and give a performance of Mr. Martin's Heather Field and one of Mr. Yates' own plays, The Countess Cathley. I offered the first guarantee of £25. Guarantee was never called upon, as Edward Martin generously paid for the whole performance. Well, that seems to be the truth of it. At this day, the matter may be too trivial for argument, but the truth that has been so often half-told and so often skilfully obscured does help us to see Martin whole. As Dennis Gwynne says, Martin not only originated the idea of having Irish literary plays produced in an Irish theatre, and when the time came provided the money for the experiment, he actually wrote one of the first two plays that were acted in the theatre, and he met with considerably greater success for his own play than was accorded to the other play by Mr Yeats. The story of that historic first night, of George Moore's lively entry into the new world of Irish theatre, of Martin's differences of theatrical opinion with Yeats and Lady Gregory, of his withdrawal from the movement, is too well known to need repetition now. Martin's withdrawal from the early theatre movement did not mean a withdrawal from the world to his turret room at Talara, or to that other ungainly room in Linster Street where, in the light of half a dozen candles, he sat with churchwarden pipe and glass of grog in the shelter of a lofty screen. In those early years of the century, he was one of the busiest men in Dublin. On Monday evening, he presides at the Piper's Club. On Tuesday, he goes to the theatre. On Wednesday, he attends a meeting of Sinn Féin. On Thursday, he dozes through the proceedings of the Kosh the Gnoha. On Friday, there is choir practice in the cathedral. On Saturday, he speaks severely to his disobedient choristers, tries new voices in his rooms at Lincoln Place, and plans new programmes with Vincent O'Brien. On Sunday, he is ever watchful in the cathedral, sitting with his hand to his ear, noting the time and the efficiency of the singers. That, needless to say, was George Moore, artistically coating the pill of fact with the bitter-sweet sugar of Mr Moore's unique brand of fiction. But in this, as in much else in that picture of Dublin life which he etched with the acid of his imagination, Moore was doing no more than putting the truth under a magnifying glass. Martin's activities were so many and so varied that the quickest way to record them is to list the full catalogue of his chief interests as Martin himself listed them for who's who. One of the original founders of the Irish dramatic movement in 1899, founder of the Palestrina Choir of Men and Boys at Dublin, organised a reform of church architecture, stained glass, etc. in 1903, was president of Sinn Féin from 1904 until he resigned in 1908, founded at Dublin 1914, the Irish Theatre for the production of non-peasant plays, plays in the Irish language, and translations of continental master dramas. Promoter of Gaelic League and other educational improvements for Ireland. Governor of Galway College of the National University. Amongst those who knew and worked with Edward Martin in the days of his association with the Gaelic League and Sinn Féin was Pyrrhus Beasley. I knew Edward Martin by repute while still a youngster, before I came to Dublin and laid eyes on him. He was president of the National Council, which later became the executive of Sinn Féin. I had read in the leader articles of his on church music, in which he denounced women in choirs. I also read a comedy of his, a political skit whose name I forget. 
I saw him first at meeting in Dublin, a big, soft, flabby man. I was later to see him at close hand as a member of the Custagnova of the Gaelic League. At this time, there were many prominent supporters of the language movement who could not speak a word of Irish, and the meetings of the Custagnova were conducted in English. George Birmingham, the Reverend Mr. Hanney, was another member. I got little opportunity of knowing Martin better these meetings, for, though a regular attendant, he never once opened his mouth and usually fell asleep and snored loudly. My first real contact with him was as a journalist. I attended numerous operas and concerts, and Martin was always there and always alone. He had a habit of standing at the back of the parterre, changing his position to the left or the right from time to time, as if trying to find out where he could hear best. I used to accost him and ask his opinion and got some interesting views on musical topics. I remember the first, I think the only time, Caruso came to Dublin. He appeared in the Theatre Royal. In those days, broadcasting was unknown and not many had heard even records of him. Martin had not heard him before, neither had I. After the performance, I approached a big lonely man standing at the back, whom nobody else had the courage to address. I asked him what he thought of, of uh, Caruso. I do not feel, he said, that there's any great difference between Caruso and John McCormack. They are both the same kind of voice, and their method of singing is the same. This statement surprised me. At the time, McCormack was in the beginning of his career, and had achieved little more than local fame. When the Hashdori, the first permanent team of Gaelic actors, was established in 1912, Edward Martin consented to be president, and I was appointed manager, what we would now call producer. Martin took no interest in our activities until I met him at a Gaelic concert and spoke of our work. He invited me to call to his flat, I did so and explained our aims and achievements. He gave a handsome subscription to our funds. On the same occasion, he had a long talk with me about Merryman's Court in Van Eater, on which I had written a much-discussed essay, lauding it as the greatest thing done in modern Irish. Martin's final summing up was that the court must be a great work of genius, as Hyde, Bergen and I said, but it dealt with a theme that had no appeal for him. He was, he said, a man incapable of appreciating it. After 1916, I had no further contact with him. I used to see him at the pro cathedral, listening to the Palestina choir. John McDonough tells that once when Martin was challenged about his habit of dozing at meetings, he had an answer ready. Maybe I do sleep when people are talking nonsense about something that doesn't interest me. But they'll find I'm wide awake if they begin to talk about any of the affairs I'm interested in. His interests were not only wide, they were intense. His support of nationalistic causes was vigorous and forthright. He was uncompromisingly on the side of the Boers during the South African War. With Maud gone and Owen McNeill, he led a campaign which stopped short just this side of riot against a proposal to extend the official welcome to King Edward when the King visited Ireland. 
His name as chairman gave weight to the most fiery resolutions of Sinn Féin. Every day the newspapers brought word of Martin's activities that shocked his loyal fellow members of the Kildare Street Club. The most startling of these appeared in the official organ of Sinn Féin. At the National Council's convention at the Rotunda, Mr Edward Martin, President of Sinn Féin, declared that the Irishman who enters the army or navy deserves to be flogged. That, understandably, was too much for the members of the Kildare Street Club, most of them officers of either army or navy. The club men, and who can blame them, lost their tempers and their heads. Hastily, over-hastily, they drafted a new rule by which they might expel Edward Martin from the club for his disloyal views. But in putting the rule into force, they left a wide legal opening through which Martin moved to challenge in a court of law his expulsion from the club to which he came each evening for dinner from his gloomy rooms above the tobacconist's shop across the street. A surprising thing about that extraordinary law case was that Martin won his action entitling him to return to a club that no longer wanted his company. Said the leader savagely, Mr Martin is now by virtue of British law reinstated as an evicted tenant of the landlord's club. He may again rub shoulders with men whom he considers are such despicable creatures that they ought to be flogged. But protests and criticism were wasted on Edward Martin once he had made up his mind. Of course I intend to go back to the club, he is reported to have said to a friend who was shocked at the thought of a man frequenting a club where he was unwelcome. I must go back to dine there. It's the only place in Dublin where I can get caviar to the general, as one might say. The club provided him with the dining room and little more. His life was still lived in the shabby room across the street. It was from that room he directed the Irish theatre which he founded in 1914, a theatre for the production of non-peasant dramas by Irishmen, of plays in the Irish language, and of English translations from European masterworks of the theatre. John McDonough was producer in the new theatre, he has many first-hand and vivid memories of Martin, not only in the theatre, but also in that candle-lit room in Linster Street. My acquaintance with Edward Martin began in 1914, when the Irish Theatre was founded. The directors were Edward Martin, Thomas MacDonagh and Joseph Plunkett. I was invited to become producer and manager. Our first production was Martin's new play, The Dream Physician a psychological study of a woman restored to reason by being brought into the company of a ridiculous author, George Augustus Moon, a very thin disguise for the famous George Moore, who had in his books used Martin, dear Edward, as a butt for his sarcasm. I played that part in the play and made up like Orpen's portrait of George Moore. It caused quite a lot of amusement, and Edward was complimented on doing a public service. A few days after, I called on Martin and saw a fair copy of myself, as I had appeared in the play, sitting at the fire. Martin, with a grin and a gesture, presented me. Now, George, here is the man who has all Dublin laughing at you. You may imagine the venom of Moore's indeed. That was my first meeting with George Moore. Martin liked to come to rehearsals, but never came on first nights. 
When I would call next morning, his first question was, were any of the hairy fellows there? As he called the bearded poets and literateurs who used to come to the plays. He did not naturally object to the presence of casual playgoers. He only complained that they did not want to listen to intellectual plays and spoiled the pleasure of those who did. My own first three-act play, Weeds, attracted more people than we could accommodate in our tiny theater. And Martin playfully said to me, we'll have to stop you writing plays or we'll be spoiled by success. At the Irish Theater, we presented the Chekhov plays for the first time in Ireland and the cherry orchard made a deep impression. A few years later, I was in New York when that play was produced on Broadway with, with the most elaborate cast. One night, I was in the company of the theater owner, owner who had produced it and a group of his friends. They were discussing how or why the Chekhov plays were considered masterpieces the well-known American drama and literary critic, Ernest Boyd, who was born in Dublin, told them that he had seen our production of The Cherry Orchard on a tiny stage with little in the way of scenery or lights, but that we had succeeded in capturing the true spirit and enchantment of Chekhov. Edward Martin was a disciple of Ibsen, I am a Scandinavian, he would keep on professing. When I proposed we, we should produce an enemy of the people, he said it was impossible on our small stage, but it turned out to be one of our greatest successes. At the time, Martin lived in South Leinster Street, next to the Kildare Street Club. The house had a large attic with a glass roof and he suggested that I might take rehearsals up there. In the public meeting scene, Paul Farrell, who played Dr. Stockman, had to shout down the mob who were howling for his blood, which he did very effectively. One morning when I called, Martin met me with a pained expression. You're a nice fellow, he said, getting me into trouble with Dublin Castle. Detectives have been here all morning, ransacking the whole place and inquiring who were the violent revolutionaries who met here every night. He chuckled with delight at the thought of the old fogies in the Calais Street Club quaking as they listened to the rebelly roar of voices coming from that fellow Martin's house. We were fortunate in gathering together a very talented group of players and helpers who worked willingly without fee in sympathy with the aims of the founders. Among our players in the beginning were Una O'Connor, F.J. McCormack, Marna Shuley, Frank Fay, Norman and Kedden, Kerry Redden, and the popular Dr. Jim McGuinness. Uh, Martin used to brush away, brush aside our critics. We must not mind them, he kept on saying to me, if only we stick together, we will achieve something.
the tragic loss of his fellow directors in 1916 saddened him. He wrote to me in prison, I am glad at the prospect of seeing you soon again. Alas for your poor brother and the others, such great talents and high ideals. The war of independence and black and tan activity made our work at the Irish Theatre impossible and added to that was the increasing feebleness of Martin. My close association with Edward Martin during those exciting years is one of my most treasured memories. The main ambition of his life, exemplified by his numerous activities, national, literary, artistic, musical, was to rescue Ireland from the blighting effects of foreign culture and ideas. For this, he devoted his life and his money. Paul Farrell established himself as an actor in the new theatre. His warmest memories are of Martin at rehearsals. When I first saw Edward Martin in the Irish theatre, where I went to rehearse in his play, The Heather Field, he presented to me immediately the appearance of a the ordinary character that we expect to find in an Ibsen play. He had a long fur coat with braided cords round the buttons across the front, and he had a round felt hat, and he sat there watching the rehearsal. I remember during the course of one of the rehearsals, towards the end of the play, there's a rather poetic piece of prose which he'd written in and in my young enthusiasm I had lost myself in the heights of this peroration and suddenly Martin broke in on my speech with the words that's very good that interruption of his of course rather upset me because I didn't think that people ought to interrupt artists when they were at work but it's characteristic of the man and his mind that he had that critical faculty that remained clear and calm uh, whatever emotional work was going on on the stage he was viewing it as the man who was running the theatre and of course it was very complimentary as well I found that uh, it was easy to approach Edward Martin I found that he had that quality about him that uh, uh, aristocrats and artists, I think, have in common, that they make no apparent effort in talking to you, and you have no effort in talking to them. The conversation is perfectly easy between them. I remember on one occasion I was in his room in South Linster Street, and John McDonough was there. and. Uh, I said I'd just been at a lecture of Yeats in the Abbey Theatre the previous Sunday. Martin was, of course, immediately interested and said, what did he say? And um, I, beginning to fumble in my memory as to what he had said, I suddenly brought forth one of the remarks that Yeats had made on that occasion. He said, the present, he said, is like an imaginary saddle on an imaginary horse before the future, which is not yet, and the past, which is no more. Oh, very interesting, said Martin. 
And, of course, I felt myself very proud that I had uh, actually picked out something from a Yeats lecture that Martin was interested in. And uh, I, sh I found that, uh, that uh, Martin was a man who was keenly interested in uh, the intellectual life and... I, in my, as a young man then, uh, beginning the intellectual life, I felt that there was a community of interest between us at once, without any strain between an older and a more experienced man and a young man like myself. I felt, for some time afterwards, and ever since indeed, I felt that I ought to have called on Martin more often. Not alone was he approachable, but I also felt that in his room there by himself, he would have been glad to have had a visitor. And I regret very much that I never called to see him often enough. Brinsley McNamara speaks of the impact on Irish life and letters of Martin's theatre in Hardwick Street. You asked me what was the impact upon uh, Irish life and letters of this theatre. Well, I have just given you some sense of it in, in uh, the idea of the uh, of the Gith Theatre and of all the small group theatres that you find around the town now. They all somehow stem from Martin's idea and not from the Abbey Theatre really. Um, actually, possibly when Martin's Theatre closed up, uh, the, uh, the continuation got, came into the ha fell into the hands of the the, the Drama League, which occasionally performed at the Abbey Theatre, but that really was all the connection. Sometimes you had an Abbey actor, sometimes you had two or three, but actually there was no connection whatsoever between the two. The, uh, the spirit and quality of Martin's Literary Theatre was something on its own and still survived through difficulties and became, as I say, embodied later in the Gate Theatre, both uh, in the productions of the Edwards MacLeomore combination and of Lord Longford's uh, company. And in the, as I say, in the small group theatres that you find around the town now. Uh, you say, you'd ask me possibly, had he any, had he, uh, did he do anything towards producing um, any Irish dramatists in the manner that the Abbey did? Well, he did, yes, but his venture at Hardwick Street possibly didn't survive long enough uh, to bring about the production, or the, to bring about the addition of sufficient dramatists to make, to make the thing uh, a sort of memorable contribution, if you like, but he did something in that direction, which was shortened by the very short time uh, he was allowed to have that influence. I would name now Henry O'Hanlon. Uh, Henry B. O'Hanlon, who uh, had, I think, two or three plays done at the Hardwick Street Theatre, mm -hmm. to my recollection. There were plays which were written in the spirit of Ibsen and resembled to some extent Martin's own plays. But they were worthy contributions and were fit to stand up with anything being done in England or in Europe at that time. A few other smaller contributions were made and sometimes Martin 
uh, revived some 18th century comedy, uh, like Vecton's Wild Irishman or something like that, which, as you see, was the kind of thing uh, that has continued in Atagetheatre. Uh, his influence in that direction was, as I say, a little curtailed by the shortness of the time he was given. When Martin founded his theatre, he achieved an ambition that dated back to those days of the 1890s, when he had made it possible for Yates and Lady Gregory to launch their theatrical venture. It was one of the two major ambitions of his lifetime. The other, his ambition to bring back to the Catholic Church in Ireland the polyphonic music of Palestrina and the other classic masters. The long, loose mouth tightened. A look of resolution came into the eyes. Woolen gloves grasped the umbrella, and the step grew quicker. He was telling me of the agreement he would draw up if he succeeded in persuading the Archbishop of Dublin to accept £10,000 for the support of a polyphonic choir. Edward is shrewd enough in business, and I admired the scrupulosity of the wording of the bond which would prevent the clerics from ever returning to Gounod's Abbey Maria or setting aside Palestrina for Verdi's Requiem. That again was George Moore, apt but unfair in his summing up of the generous gesture by which Edward Martin endowed with £10,000 a choir at the Pro-Cathedral in Dublin. Into the deed of endowment, Martin wrote the charter of the choir and the fulfilment of his own ambition. The music to be sung shall be Gregorian, and that of Palestrina, or in the Palestrina style, being that which has been declared by the supreme liturgical authority of the Roman Catholic Church to be the most worthy of a place in divine worship. And no music composed later than the end of the 17th century shall be sung, unless registered on a list to be drawn up and added to from time to time by the committee. By any reckoning, these were major achievements in an exceptionally full lifetime. Yet in looking back, one wonders if the fullness of the man's public life was compensation for the narrow limits of living he imposed upon himself in the succession of dreary rooms that served him as home. One of the sharpest memories which his cousin, Lady Hempel, has of Edward Martin in his younger days is a memory of his unwavering determination to escape from the day-to-day -day life of Tolara to his bleak room in the Norman turret. He went there after breakfast. He never appeared at luncheon. And then in the afternoon, we used to go out either for a walk or for a drive, you know, or perhaps we might go and visit some antique monument or some graveyard to look at some where poets were supposed <laughs> to be buried. I remember going on some of these expeditions, but Otherwise, we used to, um, Ebba Martin wouldn't go to a tennis party or anything like that. Oh, no. Someone has said that his friendship with George Moore was Martin's sole social activity. Understandably enough, that relationship began to wear thin after the publication of Moore's Hail and Farewell, with its wickedly witty pen pictures or caricatures of Dear Edward. They always, you know, used to talk to each other because they'd meet at my mother's house at dinner and everything like that, and they'd be quite friendly and everything. But Edward used to say that he couldn't have the same feeling for George that he had before. By steadfastly refusing to read the book in which Moore had gleefully endowed his friends with an immortality they could 
very well have done without, Edward managed for some years to keep their friendship from foundering utterly. But eventually the friendship came to an end in a scene that might well have been invented by Moore himself, with someone other than George Moore in the second best part. Well, I believe I could safely say I was present at the last interview. That happened in 15 Linster Street, Dublin. Mr. Martin was then living in that house. Yes. So how it actually happened was I, I let in Moore into the room. And Moore stood there in the center of the floor. And he said, good morning, Edward, which he always used to call him Edward. But Edward didn't get very excited at all about Moore's presence when he said, what kind of tomfoolery are you going on with now, Moore, he says. Well, as far as I can remember, Moore was more or less offended. He saw at once that Edward Martin didn't want him in the room. So after that, uh, Edward Martin said no more. Moore went his way. And I think that's about the last interview they ever had. By chance, it was Owen Lenan who was witness to another and infinitely more significant moment of farewell in that shabby room in Linster Street. It was the eve of Easter 1916. Time had changed utterly the political scene in which Martin had played so stormy a part at the turn of the century. But Martin was not forgotten, even by the new men of politics who had chosen a way of physical force with which he uncompromisingly disagreed. One of the leaders, Thomas McDonough, who had been co-founder with Martin of the Irish Theatre and had written for it a characteristic play. With the moment of revolution no more than a matter of hours away, Thomas McDonough found time to visit Martin for what was to be the last time. He was not only Martin's fellow worker in the theatre, he was his close friend. Indeed he was. I remember the last interview they had. It was somewhere about few days before the rebellion of 1916. And after a long conversation, evidently it was on the common rising, but Edward Martin told him, I'll never forget it. Remember, my dear boy, he says, you'll be shot, and a lot of you'll be shot. Thomas McDonough stood at the door, he raised his hand, and he said, God bless your sense, you don't know everything. So the moment he went outside the door, well, God help that poor man, he says, he'll be shot. They're walking into it. That was the last, I think, he, he ever saw Thomas McDonough. In a sense, it was Martin who was saying goodbye. A goodbye to the Ireland he knew and for which he had worked so steadfastly in his own fashion. He was to have little further active part to play on the Irish scene. Dennis Gwynn sums up the twilight years. His vitality, as well as his health, began to fail. He had fiercely aggravated a natural tendency to rheumatism by his persistence in sleeping in the cold, flagged room in his tower at Tulira, and by his disregard for all reasonable comfort in his miserable lodgings in Dublin. He died in the bleak, bare bedroom of the turret at Tulira in the week before Christmas of 1923. He had written into his will a strange but noble gesture, proclaiming himself to the end an eccentric. An eccentric whose greatest eccentricity was to serve others. After my death, the proper authorities of the Cecilia Street School of Medicine shall take my body and shall cause it to be dissected in the dissecting rooms of the said school, in the same manner, in all respects, as a subject acquired in the ordinary course for dissection would be dissected. And when same shall have been fully dissected, 
cause my remains to be gathered and interred with Christian burial, and, as simply as the remains of paupers and other bodies dissected in the dissecting rooms are usually interred. And so it was. He chose to be buried in a pauper's grave, side by side with the unclaimed workhouse dead, for whom public charity provides a resting place. In death, he had achieved an anonymity greater even than that which the turret room had afforded him in life. Today, his grave is unmarked and unknown.